word together. And I'd like to do this with you and share some of the encouragements that I found there over the last little while. Uh, but first, I'd like to tell you a story. When I was pregnant with my first child, I went to see a stage show with my mum and my sister. It was called Mum's the Word, or something like that. Um, it was written and performed by a very funky, dramatic group of uh, people, some women who'd lived in Brunswick uh, and kind of done their parenting together. They'd, I think they were in the same mother's group or something like that. And so they made this stage show about their experiences of motherhood, from conception, the birth hurdle, and to just parenting young children. There was one woman in this show that I was particularly taken with her story. The, she just spoke about the experience of seeing herself as her growing child's home. She was the place where her child was safe and where her child was nurtured. Her body would do what was required to nourish and care for her unborn child because she was the place where her child belonged. For a time, she was a person's home. That really, that picture's stuck in my mind for a long time. I want you to think now where you consider your home to be. In your mind's eye, some of you will be thinking of your address, the physical house that you dwell in, where you sleep, where you're fed, where you're readied for the next day. If you close your eyes for a moment, you don't have to, that's okay. You might be able to picture many places that you've called home over your lifetime the places where you've been refreshed and encouraged and comforted. I wonder what pictures you think of when you hear the word home. Maybe a grandparent's dinner table, whilst busy adults passed food, talked the day through and reminded you again of correct table manners. Maybe home is building sandcastles on a beach or bushwalking on a clear day. There are probably some really patient people here who see themselves at home when they're playing tunes on a piano and they're listening to it sing back to them the rhythms of their own soul. Others are at home when they're in conversation with a friend or cozying out with a book on a squishy couch. One of my dear friends at work always talks at the end of the weekend about being at home, being under her doona. That is her safest, most comfortable and happiest place. A few years ago, we managed to buy our own home and this was really exciting for us as finally I could put up pictures and paint on walls and you guessed it, I could dig lots of holes. Uh, that was the most exciting thing for me, which is a bit sad, but true. Uh, and I hoped that in time, flowers and vegetables would grow where I'd forced the spade through the earth. It was, and it still is, somewhat exciting to have a physical space to call my home. Over the past few months, I've been thoroughly encouraged and challenged, though, by a song written many, many years ago by an old man who never got to his physical home. This man lived as a prince and then as an exile and finally as a leader for that exiled people group. He led God's people from harsh slavery towards a promised land flowing with good things to eat. However, it took a really, really, really long time to get there. And although this man, Moses, was never able to see, he was able to see the land in the distance, he never actually set foot on that ground. He led the Israelite people to the promised land, but he never arrived at their destination. Something about his situation, though, was still okay. 
And I think it has something to do with how he viewed God. He didn't see his home as something made of bricks and mortar. If you have a Bible nearby, and I don't imagine that you do or that you have to, but if you do uh, and you want to look along, we're going to be looking at Psalm 90. So I'll give you a moment to find that. You guys are cool. You all do it on your phone. I still have a paper one. <laughs> the paper people are cool too. It's right. Uh, Moses starts his song in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What encourages me here is that Moses saw God as his home. A divine being was actually the place where Moses existed. And not only himself, but he existed there with the whole Israelite people, the whole nation. In God, they have known life and safety and belonging. They didn't just have God nearby. Uh, or God with them, but they were actually in him. I think it's crucial to our understanding of the rest of the psalm uh, to realise that Moses knew his existence was viable and continued only because of God, the creator and the sustainer of the world that Moses lived in. It's a peculiar thing to ponder on, isn't it? Moses grew up in an Egyptian palace. He would have known many physical comforts that life would seemingly offer him. Maybe being exiled taught him that security wasn't to come from walls and a roof. Or maybe it was that growing to know God, the ruler and protector of Israel, taught him this truth. Moses had no physical home to return to, but in the barren desert he could see his existence as being safe in God's hands. He knew that when he and his people were in God's hands, they were home. Have you ever thought about God as your home? I find it so easy when I've had a busy day at work, sometimes with some feral children, uh, to be thinking, I just can't wait to get home to my (laughs) pyjamas. But what happens when I start to say to myself, and I do talk to myself a lot, you're at home, God's got you here, and he's sustaining you. How do we feel about calling a divine being our safe place? As Moses continues to pray, he compares God's eternal existence with man's mortality. He marvels at God being even before matter was. He is humbled by the temporary nature of human life. Listen now as, uh, as to how he describes humanity's existence. You, God, turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and it's withered. Moses grieves so deeply the speed at which life seems to move. He grieves that life races and that many of us feel left behind. I think I'm not the only person here, and I know I'm not because someone else said it at my table, uh, who's found themselves thinking, wow, how did that go so quickly? 
How come these things have already happened and I feel like I haven't caught up with them yet? Time keeps going, it marches on, and we're not in control of it. As you abruptly watch your life uh, take twists and turns that are unplanned and not anticipated, you can be assured that God sees a thousand years just like a day. It doesn't mean that God has a poor sense of time or that he doesn't care. And it's not meant to be uh, a scientific measure of time. But it's a beautiful way of saying that God sees all of time. So very, very many years. Whilst we see 60, 70, 80. Grappling with the speed at which life moves actually helps to centre us in God. To know that our security is in him. And that's why we can bring the griefs of our short lives to God our Father. Moses the exile continues, and this next bit sounds a bit scary, but remember that Moses knows that God will sustain him, and so he's able to pray these words. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they pass quickly and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Isn't it amazing that Moses can have such a humble view of himself before God? Knowing that his time is in God's hand, he knows that God sees his imperfections, his sins are laid bare before God, and he's seen for who he is. Of all the pain that life sees, the pain that Moses feels the most deeply is the offence that he has caused God. Life is hard. Sometimes it really sucks. Uh, at our wedding, a dear friend spoke from Ecclesiastes and he terrified my very, very religious auntie by saying in his wedding sermon, life's a bitch, life hurts, it really does. <coughs> Family relationships, job security, friendships, health, social standing, children, none of these blessings are a given. And yet when we do receive them, so many times they still bring pain. Moses laments that, but even more he laments that God sees his sin and he begs God for relief from that pain. When was the last time you grieved your own sin? I know it's something that I could do a lot more than I do. I know some people here see their sin for what it is. Some of us try to ignore it and some of us are so heavily weighed down uh, by the things and the attitudes that we do that hurt God. Whichever category you fit into, and I'm pretty sure that many of us would slip in and out between them throughout our lives, we need to remind ourselves that we can bring our sins before God and know that he delights in forgiving us. Moses does that, and he's able to ask this beautiful request of his creator and his protector. Lord, teach us 
to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. God, give us wisdom. Don't make us financially savvy or crafty or gorgeous or smart, but please, Lord, just teach us to number our days. Moses knows that when we rest and root our identity in God, when we see every day as a gift given by God that he can take at his choosing, our hearts can grow in wisdom. When we're grateful for what we have, we find wisdom. And it's not that we don't grieve horrible circumstances or that we don't cry out for relief. These are right responses to horrible things that happen in life. But we know that we can have a baseline of contented trust because God is the one who knows our days. Moses entreats God, showing us how to wrestle with our distresses. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendour to their children. Moses knows that life is full of God's discipline and that his discipline is hard to bear. The afflictions that God sends on his people do cause pain, and yet Moses knows that this is the very reason that he can keep calling on God. As God is his dwelling place, his home, he is the provider of what people need and he will be what satisfies them. Last week, I sat with a friend. She lives uh, far away, so I don't get to see her maybe more than once a year. Uh, Her pregnancy with her eldest son nearly killed her. Her kidneys began to fail and the doctors suggested that an abortion would save her life. At that time, we prayed. We prayed for her life and for that of her unborn child. And God generously showed great mercy. Her son just turned 13. His life isn't easy, though. He was born at 26 weeks gestation, and he spent most of his life with his mother leaving the family farm, going in and out of hospital. He and his younger brother have said goodbye to her more times than they can count. The trauma of not knowing if you'll have a mum tomorrow has marked his life time and time again. She goes to kidney dialysis three times a week. She leaves home early in the morning and she comes back exhausted. She's wobbly on her feet. She has large lumps on her arm that are now starting to crawl across her back where I'm not sure if the right medical word is, but I think it's a cannula, is inserted. And she's dropped half of her weight. In the 39 years that she's been alive, she's spent 13 years being told, you're not going to meet your unborn child. You won't live past Christmas. You won't live to see your children start school. You won't live through this winter. You won't see your children finish primary school. And she told me the other day that of the 18 people doing dialysis when she started, she's the only one left. She doesn't have the emotional strength to go to their funerals anymore. And she grieves every day because she spent 13 years trying to learn how to live when she's dying. 
Many times I've sat with her and seen tears fall down her face as she asks, how do I do this? How do I keep living when I keep getting told I should already be dead? She's been dying for a third of her life. I know I don't often see the fragility of my own life as she sees hers. Most of us spend a good part of our lives uh, wishing and working towards, we were just a little bit older, that's when you're about 16, I think, um, wishing you're a bit more capable, a bit more beautiful, a bit lovelier, a bit richer, a bit more lovable, etc., etc. And then we seem to spend a lot of time um, trying to maintain what we've amassed or worked for, and then suddenly, <coughs> apparently, we're old. How would it be, though, if we viewed ourselves as having a shorter time to do life? Are there things about how we live that would maybe look different? I'm not suggesting that you should assume the worst at every opportunity. That is exhausting. And when I look at my friend's life, it is, it's horrible. But it's clearly not what Moses is doing, so please don't do that. I'm just hoping that we can consider how do I keep living when I don't know what I will have. And when you've asked that question of yourself, ask God to satisfy you in the morning with his unfailing love. That is what he does. My friend regularly asked for the last few years, uh, as, as she got older and as she kept living, uh, nurses would be saying to her, oh, what are you, why are you here again? We thought you weren't going to be back and horrible things like that. And this has been happening quite intensely for the last maybe three or four years. Um, and she's been asking, what do I do? How do I be a good person? How do I contribute to other people's lives? How do I honour the people around me whilst my own life is failing? In talking with her recently, it was late and I was so tired, but I was so encouraged hearing that she's finally not trying to repay everyone for the good that they have done her. A lot of people have invested in her life. That's impossible. But she is asking God to help her see just where she can love, where she can forgive, where she can give joy. She started to see herself as being in God as being at home. This is the same way that Moses finishes his appeal. May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses asks God to work through him. God, where you put me to work, please bring results. God, those you give me to love, please equip me to love them generously. God, where I struggle, give me forgiveness and help me to show patience. Because Moses sees himself as dwelling in God, his life being in God, the sustainer of the universe, he's able to ask God to work through him for God's glory. Now, I didn't want to tell you my friend's uh, 
story because I wanted you to feel sad or because I necessarily wanted you to say, go away everyone and pray, keep praying because God works through prayer. It saved the life of a woman and her unborn child. Although those things are good to do, please do pray. But uh, I wanted to share this story of her life with you because I wanted to encourage you by her feeble faith. It's the same faith that Moses had, broken by his own imperfection, by unmet dreams. Both Moses and my dear friend are sustained by their loving father. Though there is grief and struggle, there is crying and shame and regret, when they are found in God, they are safe. And we too can be safe in God. Some of us at this moment may be quite worried about employment contracts or bank statements or precious relationships that are strained or doctor's results. These griefs are real and they involve many questions and much apprehension. There is fear and there is unknown. Uh, but I want to encourage you today to bring these things home to God because he is your dwelling place. Please do as Moses does. Please choose to see God as your home. He is the one who can sustain and forgive you. He will teach you and he will establish his work through you. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, yeah, so if you'd like to bow your heads, that'd be good. Almighty God, we come before you now as we are. You see the thoughts running through our minds. Uh, you see the way our hearts work. You know us intricately because you made us. Lord, some of us have known you all our lives. Some of us are not sure where we stand before you. I'd like to ask now, Lord, that you would help us to see you as our home, that we would see ourselves as dwelling in you. Lord, there is much uncertainty in our lives and we live in a country uh, where there is government support, where there are good systems to look after people. We're in a well, relatively safe country and yet our lives still know suffering and grief. But Lord, you know us and you love us and we are not alone. We are living our lives out in your hands. Lord, help us to see that reality when everything else around us threatens to overwhelm. Lord, may we grieve well. Please be our comfort, Lord. Lord, we want to ask uh, particularly uh, for you to keep working in the life of Florina Ramsden as she's dealing with uh, hard news today about her health. Thank you, Lord, that she is in you. And we ask that you would fill her with that knowledge, that you would calm her spirit with your peace. Thank you, Lord, for loving each of these people here. 
Uh, please keep, in, keep working in them. Keep them at home in you until you take them home to be with you. And we ask this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Amen.